Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Renier. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about designing beautiful yet conversion-focused website without having to sacrifice on SEO or speed, uh, which is quite a heavy topic. So to clarify, uh, if you're a listener to this podcast, you know that we are not going to talk about you know, so-called best practices that will become obsolete in the next six months. Instead, we're going to really try to identify the core principles behind this very topic so that you can listen back to this episode in two years' time or even five years' time, and it should still be relevant. So my guest today is an SEO and conversion expert with 14 years of experience. His first business was actually a lemonade stand, which is not original, except it wasn't lemonade. It was his mom's mint iced tea, which is pretty cool. Now, though, he's a bit more successful of a business that he that he founded a few years ago. He's the founder and CEO of I'm From The Future, which is an agency that helps you build pages that rank and convert. He's also one of the three partners at TrafficThinkTank.com, where they help digital marketers level up their game uh, in digital marketing and SEO in particular. His two compadres there are actually Matthew Barbie, who's the director of acquisition at HubSpot. You might know him. And Ian Howells, the director of SEO at Landing Tree. So Nick Eubanks, so happy to have you here. Welcome aboard. Thank you so much, Louis. Uh, uh, Louis, very happy to be here as well. So it, it almost feels like the intersection of ranking well on Google when you do a website and having a pleasant site that seems to convert doesn't exist, right? It almost feels like you have to compromise one of the two. It certainly, it certainly feels that way. So we're going to try to debunk that and try to understand how to design something that is quite uh, the intersection of the two, something that works for, for, for robots like Google and also something that works really well for humans like us. So before we, we dive into this step-by-step -step together, can you describe and, and explain what uh, SEO is very briefly? So in its purest form, SEO or search engine optimization is the process to try to rank pages uh, of websites in google.com search results as high as possible. And can you describe what you mean by conversion? So the goal of getting a user to your website to take an action that you want. That could be something as small as sharing a page on your site on a social media channel or giving an email address to something more directly attached to revenue, such as placing an order or filling out a contact form to become a lead. Great. So now we've defined kind of the basics and, and, and everybody should understand what we're going to talk about next. So now let's dive in into a sort of a step-by-step -step together, uh, because I very much, very much like the topic that you want to talk about, which is like designing those, those beautiful uh, website yet conversion centered. So let's say you have a client that you need to work with. You might pick an industry if you want, if it makes it easier for to explain, or you might just want to get generic. But when this is this objective of building such a website, where do you start? What is step number one? So step number one is usually to become familiar with the client's personas, who their, their target audience is and what the demographics are that are represented within their audience. So how old they are, are they male and female? Where do they live? What's their education level? What's their income level? What are their interests? Where do they spend time on the internet? What is their phraseology or the nomenclature that they use to describe the either problems that they have, the pain that they have that they're looking to solve by finding the product or service that our client would provide or the way that they characterize a solution. That's a very important first step. So we can begin to understand what keywords ultimately that, that these people, this audience might be typing into something like Google uh, to try to find pages where we would want to make sure our clients were, were showing up for. And how do you find that out? How do you particularly understand the phraseology and, and how people explain the problems they are, they are looking to solve? So the way personas are most often built is using surveys. I mean, there's a lot of really cool survey tools that are out there now. So you can do, you can, you know, in the olden days, we, we would use Google AdWords or potentially even Facebook ads to try to target our audience and, and get them to fill out surveys in exchange for some sort of monetary um, event, whether that was, you know, if it's something super simple, you can, you can enter them into a, into a drawing for a chance to win a hundred dollar Amazon gift card. Um, or if it's, you know, it takes a little bit more time and is of higher value, you may have to trade some monetary vehicle every single time for those survey responses. So for every survey response, you know, you may have to pay $5, 
there's other ways to sort of drive these a little bit easier. Uh, Amazon has a, a service that combines humans and men and machines called Mechanical Turk. And now Google also has a, a survey function where you can get closer to 80 cents to a dollar for survey responses um, directly through Google infrastructure. Um, once you have those personas dialed in, then there's a couple different pieces of software that you can use to start feeding in what you believe as the marketer, as the SEO, you believe those keywords are that are going to have search volume to get actual search volume data back. You can use something like Google's Keyword Planner, which is free, um, which uses data directly punched into Google and in a number of different sources where that they that they use to collect that data. Or you can use a tool such as Keyword Keg, Ahrefs, SEMrush. There's a lot of these sort of SEO tools out there that leverage clickstream data uh, to give estimates on, on you know how often they believe these keywords are being searched each month. Right. So let me take a step back because uh, you're, you're talking about something quite interesting about the surveying people. So you're talking about actually, let's say you work with a client and they understand more or less the type of customer they want to reach out and the type of the most profitable customers they want to reach out to and they understand who they are in a demographic level. So then you would use a sort of a panel type of, of, of service. So a way for you to reach this, this audience uh, by just saying, I want to, to send a survey to to people between 20 and 40 living in the US and who have uh, who are marketers, right? Yes. So uh, without necessarily going into the details of every single question you tend to use, but perhaps you can identify or, or yeah, identify for us the, the maybe the top three questions you like to to ask when it comes to the the phraseology and the way people talk about their their problems and stuff like this. So that's exactly this. You want to ask leading questions that give you the opportunity to collect that that nomenclature that you're after. So you want to ask broad questions that, uh, in the sense that they they're, they serve a specific function. So you're not asking for use cases as much as you're asking for you know if you were in this scenario. So let's say we had a client that sold a cleaning a specific kind of cleaning product, and their cleaning product was organic, and they wanted to find out what a a potential consumer what they would be looking for in a product and what words they would use to be describing that. Cause maybe, you know, the, the average executive in that company is like, Oh, we'll just call it organic. Let's rank for organic kitchen cleaner. But maybe that's not the terms that their, their, their customers or potential customers are actually using. So they may ask for, you know, uh, some of those questions might be what is very important to you in a kitchen cleaner. Um, and, and you would get the, the respondents describing, you know, it's able to kill germs. It's not going to, kill my dog. It's safe for my kids. I, it's, I'm able to prepare food on it immediately without having to wait or having to re-clean it. I don't, I don't want to have to do multiple steps where I'm disinfecting first with, with one cleaner and then I have to you know, water it down and wipe it down with water so as not to contaminate any food I might put on my countertop. Um, and you're all sort of, all those questions are sort of getting at the benefits of an organic cleaner where you don't have to worry about any of those things. But the, you know, the people who are responding to those questions, not once did they use the word, well, I would want an organic cleaner or I only use organic cleaners. So, you know, the, as the, as the, the SEO on the flip side, you're looking, you're, you're realizing that the terminology that your potential customer base is using to describe your product, which while it is an organic product, they're using benefit statements like kids safe, pet safe, you know, uh, does not contaminate food, uh, you know, uh, zero additional prep time. Like you're, you're, there's other terms that, that are going to come out of those surveys that you, that'll allow you to capture a lot of those value statements from a potential SEO perspective. So I, I very much love this first step because it is something that I believe is not going to change anytime soon in the next five, 10 years, or even 20 years. It's like search is there to stay, whether it's going to be voice search or any type of other search, but people are always looking for answers for their problems, their, their day-to-day stuff. So that's fine. The second thing that you're relying on right now is you're relying on, on how people actually talk and the way they think, which is a second pillar you can really leverage that will always be the case. So you're trying to, instead of coming back from a, a very ivory tower type of mindset where you decide this is how we're going to call this, and this is, this is the type of keywords we're going to rank for and try to rank for, you're using people's way of talking and their own vocabulary in order to just to match that, right? Well, and to your point, that's the, um, you know, right now it's estimated that by 2020, 56% of all searches, at least in the United States, will be done via voice. So really understanding, you know, that nomenclature, you know, uh, that the cultural representations that, that are going to be become more and more important as, as 
more and more uh, of search switches from being typed in into being uh, you know driven by voice search, um, where people who potentially maybe would even formalize the keywords they're using a little bit more because they're typing them are just going to be having these very natural conversations with these voice assistants, whether those are Alexa or Siri or whatever that one is that Microsoft uses that nobody nobody's heard of yet, but who knows. Um, <laughs> You know, it, it's it's changing very quickly, um, and it's just it's funny to begin to understand and see patterns where nomenclature changes. Like you know, what we call a phone in the United States, people in the UK, um, you know, call their mobile, and people in Germany call a handy. Um, and a hand, <laughs> not to be too inappropriate, but a handy in the United States means something completely different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is why it's important to really target your search and think about per country and, and all of that. There's also a funny story. It's a side, but I want to think about it. I want to talk about it. There's this Canadian chocolate brand recently uh, that's spelled S H Y T E. Okay, and it's Scotland, and even in Ireland. <laughs> Even in Ireland and Scotland, uh, people will say shite instead of saying shit. And they say shite. And the, 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 the slogan is, uh, eat shite. Their slogan is eat shite. <laughs> Seriously. So it's so funny. So it goes back to the, it's a side note, but it really goes back to this. It's like understanding people to a level where you understand how they talk. You understand how they search. You understand how they think. And therefore you can match that with a proper SEO strategy. So I very much love that. And I ask you the top three question, but I think the number one is, uh, that you mentioned is what is it that you're looking for in this product, right? Is there any other briefly that you like to use uh, type of questions? Yeah. So I mean, questions that are polarizing tend to drive the best answers. And, and, and if you're, you know, polar, you know, you know if you're going to support, if you're going to open it up to allow for people to give you polarizing answers. You need to create a polarizing question. So you need to use language that's going to evoke emotion from the responses, right? So you may, you, you may use in your question, the word love, or the word hate, like, like very polarizing as opposed to prefer or, or dislike, like using that strong, um, emotionally driven language. So it's, you know, what are, what are three products that you hate and why? And, and they'll explain, you know, and then suddenly your, your, you know, your core audience is going to be explained to you. Well, these are the products that I completely hate that I would never buy. And here's why I hate them. And you're getting not only insights into what are the ways that, that your, your audience is, you know, what are the words they're using to describe the things that they don't like, because your product may, may, share many of those same characteristics. And you as the marketer have to essentially decide, you know, I need to make sure that I'm not bringing that to light or I'm not focusing too much on that, or I need to come up with a different way. You know, I, I need to reframe it. I need to find a different way to message these components. Sometimes you may need to, to make mention of some of these components for compliance reasons, um, depending on what your industry is. But, but again, giving the opportunity, uh, leaving questions open-ended enough where you're, you're, you're providing the carrot as sort of the bait. Uh, but you want to leave it open-ended enough that you don't get too specific of an answer that it's not as useful as it could potentially be. Yeah, and, and you might run the risk of screwing completely your data if, you, if you're just asking leading questions that that leads to the answer you want to hear, um, not the... the, the exactly. Uh, not yeah, the, 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 one of the absolute worst um, things that I see some people who are running surveys do is they ask questions that are... Uh, so multiple choices is is not great. I, I, I would prefer not to have multiple choice, but what I think is the worst is binary questions. When you ask people yes and no questions in a survey, um, I think though, I think that's, that's a waste in yeah. my opinion. So f from my experience in terms of survey questions, a good thing to start with is always open-ended answer and an open-ended question so that you really don't screw any uh, data and you just let people talk. And then let's say you ask the same question over and over again, and you know that 90% of people usually answer those four type of answers, then you can use multiple choice question with a, a fifth possibility that says, you know, if, if, if this isn't the case, then what is it? Right. Um, that's a good way to not to, to, to spot trends then going forward. But I completely agree in terms of open ended, uh, open ended question. So that's the step number one, which is quite already uh, loaded with value. So once you know how people talk and the type of way they describe your product and all, what do you do? Then it really comes down to the process that, that we would call keyword research. And that differs pretty tremendously, you know, depending on who you talk to it about. It's something that we really put a lot of time and energy into. We at From the Future bring a, a, a tremendous amount of data into that, that component of the process. So we scrape Google for who's ranking. We then go scrape each one of the individual sites that's ranking. We look at, you know, the HTML on those pages, how many words are on those pages, what's the keyword use and all the different meta attributes. So like the page title versus the URL versus the headers that are on the page, the word use on the page, not just the, you know, within the count itself. 
um, and then pulling a number of other third-party data sources to really try to triangulate um, what is it about this page that's allowing it to rank, but also what are the key, you know, what are the total number of keywords that this page is ranking for? I think a lot of people that aren't really in the weeds, you know, in SEO don't understand that one page, any one given URL on a website can rank for thousands and thousands of different keywords. Um, it's not about just setting up a page to rank for one keyword or 10 keywords or even 100 keywords. Um, you know, we, we call those internally, we call them Bigfoot pages, pages that have a large footprint, um, where that footprint is comprised of lots of different keywords that that page might rank for. And we try to get that dialed in as much as we can and align like groups of keywords to topics and then use that topic to create the, the roadmap for the, the website in terms of content, whether that's a site map or an editorial calendar or content calendar, depending on what you like to call it. Um, but using a lot of that information to drive what should the sort of content requirements be for that site um, based on who the audience is and what sort of some of the goals are from a, a search engine optimization and traffic perspective. So we obviously don't have time to drill into the exact process you use for keyword research. And this isn't the topic of this particular episode, although I'd love to talk to you again about keyword research in, in particular and dive into your process there. But perhaps you can give us, uh, you've already gave us, given us a few steps in, within this keyword research realm, but perhaps you can give us one or two resources that people should, uh, should check out if they want to know more about this particular topic. Yeah. So let me just double check here. And this is going to be different in each country. Um, but if you do a, if somebody wants to do a search for keyword research now, um, on Google, uh, you should be able to find an article that I wrote that I updated just a couple months ago for this year, um, on, on the website on I'm from the future.com, um, that really goes into the sort of a step-by-step -step process, um, for, you know, how to start, how to affirm, the terms that you should be looking for with data, what to do with that data, how to format it, uh, how to think about organizing it and prioritizing it. Um, that's a good, you know, free blog post, obviously, that can get you started. Okay, so folk, folks can can just maybe search on Google for like "I'm from the future" keyword research, and they might they might find it. Right? If you just search keyword research now, like okay. NOW. Um, I, we might even, and I haven't checked, um, so I'm doing this now, <laughs> is we might even rank for Keyword Research 2018. We rank number two for Keyword Research 2018, but that would be another easy way to potentially find it. Okay, right. So at the end of step two, we then have keywords categorized by the core topics that we want to go after, right? Yes. So you, take, you took the example earlier on about this um, cleaning product of some sort, right? Yep. So maybe just give us an example of a typical topic uh, with the keywords that are within this topic for this particular product that could be. So, so for cleaning product topics might be um, like all the various use cases. So it might be, you know, like cleaning products that are, are safe for kids versus cleaning products that are safe for pets, cleaning products for the office, cleaning products for the kitchen versus the bathroom, um, everyday cleaning products versus commercial cleaning products. I mean, there's um, this is where... Uh, you know, that ideation really should be driven by the data that you get back from the keyword research process. Um, once you, you, you know, you cast a wide net and you collect all of this data and all these different term variations and you see how much they're being searched for each month and how competitive they are based on a bunch of these different competitive scoring metrics that are, are provided from some of the software tools out there. You can then start to, to, to group them based on patterns it's like, okay, so for kitchen cleaning products, there's about 600 keywords that have, you know, a monthly total search volume of the, between them. Uh, of you know 100,000 searches per month or um kid safe cleaning products that's got maybe 400 keywords pet safe is you know 900 so like that's a much larger group of terms but that maybe doesn't have doesn't have as much monthly search volume there there's more total keywords that people are searching for but they they're not searched for as much individually so that the sum of that population is is going to be lower um and you can sort of use these to create themes and based on those themes that's you know the the best way to take that and use that to inform the design of a website from the information architecture perspective is to figure out, okay, what are all the themes that I need to support? And then how can I build an architecture that allows me to support these themes um, in a way that would still not only work for search engines, but also allow me to attract uh, potential searchers at each stage of that conversion funnel. Um, so the, gen the general conversion funnel more times than not is different in different verticals, but for the con for consumer verticals, like if we're selling a cleaning product to, you know, Susie Homemaker, um, there's going to be four stages. There's going to be um, the initial uh, information stage um, where she's using, you know, shorter keywords. 
two, three word terms because she's not really sure what she wants yet. And then as she does some reading, clicks on some results, does, you know, starts gathering some information. She moves from informational into more of the investigation phase. These are going to be three, four, five, potentially six word keywords where she's gathering more information. She's starting to refine the keywords that she's doing. She's starting to reflect some of that nomenclature that we learned about from the survey process that we may have built specific pages for. And then ultimately, she's going to move down into the transactional phase where she's going to be using specific modifiers. Um, so a modifier is a one or two word uh, keyword that is usually added on to a larger string of keywords, like a larger string of terms that are representative of a keyword that changes the intent. These are going to be the ones that are going to be most representative of buying behavior are going to be modifiers like buy, best, coupons, discounts, where to buy, uh, and other things like zip codes and cities. Um, if this person is looking to make a purchase locally versus you know online. Right. Okay. So let me deconstruct what you just said because it's so, so, so valuable. So first of all, you mentioned a term called information architecture. Can you define what it is briefly? Um, it's the, the, so the, the best way to think about an information architecture for a website is the URLs. Um, the URL architecture is, is what ultimately creates that are the, the information architecture of the site. There's a little bit of nuance to that because the, you can support an information architecture based on the content you put on the pages. Um, but it, it's really the best way to think about it is how links flow through the site itself, internal links. So, you know, your, um, your average e-commerce site probably has, um, a homepage and about page, a contact page, and then it, it's going to have a shop page, some top page that shows all of the products from your, your total, you know, product catalog page. The standard information architecture for an e-commerce site is going to be categories. And then those, those categories will have subcategories. And then those subcategories will have the products in them themselves. Okay. So we were at the stage where we had those themes, uh, classified by keywords. And what I like about this, this, this method, um, that we talked a few times in this podcast, but that is still very nice to, to repeat is like, it's, it's customer research. We talk on this, in this podcast quite a lot about, how to understand people, how to make sure that you understand how they behave, how they don't behave, how they talk, how they don't talk. And your way of describing it, because you are in the world of SEO and this is what you do day in and day out and you're an expert in it, is really to use a kind of an indirect way to understand how people talk by just scraping data from the biggest search engine in the world and understand how people type, how people search. And you also ask directly uh, via surveys and to, to understand how they, um, how, how people search and, and all of that. So I very much like that because it's still very much a core principle of marketing that is not going to change. Even if uh, voice search takes over, you can still do that. Even if there's another type of way people are going to look for information, you will always have to look back at how people think and how, how they search. So, so that's all good. So now you have those themes, those keywords. And then you started to talk about how to transition and use those, those themes and keywords to, to build the information architecture. And then the next thing that you say that was really interesting is, is the, the kind of the conventional funnel or the way people are looking for information, uh, amongst different stages. So, so for consumer type product, you said, can you repeat the four stages again for us, please? Yeah. So it's, it's also well, for a consumer product, it's really three stages. There's one additional stage in there that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily fit into the, the common model. Um, and it's the awareness stage. And the reason the awareness stage is not always going to fit in there is because an awareness is usually driven by, um, a brand exposure. So if you're, you know, if, if so there, there's four general buckets of keyword intent, which is what we're talking about right now. We're talking about the intent behind these keywords. So that there's uh, informational, navigational, commercial investigation, and transactional. Navigational means that somebody is searching for the name of your brand or the name of your product by name because they have some awareness of you already. They've seen you. They, somebody mentioned them to you. They, got, they saw an ad. They heard a radio commercial. They saw you on TV. It would be terms for you guys like... Um, it would be you know, whether uh, people are searching for the acronym... So, uh, you know, e, uh, EHM, where everyone hates marketers, or they're searching for your name, or they're searching for specific podcast titles, these would all be representative of navigational searches. Um, if we remove the navigational component and just look at sort of the core straight line funnel, uh, it's going to be uh, informational, investigation, and then transactional. Okay. And what you do there is you link your research, your themes to a specific stage in the funnel, right? Yes, correct. Okay. So in the phase of we, where we describe the keyword research, not in a crazy amount of details because we, we, we have to talk through the different steps, but 
you need to to keep in mind that those themes need to be related to a stage in the funnel that you can't just uh sort out keywords that that would be in different stages so you said you talked about those those different stages and you talk about like short keywords versus uh, long tail keywords or very specific keywords you need to be careful not to to group them together right correct and and and, and, you, and you know you can map intent for keywords like people you know people are who are searching, they're showing you what they want. You, you know, it, it's not too hard to infer what their expectation is from the words that they're using to drive their search. So we work with a lot of software companies. And there is, the beautiful part about working with a lot of companies within a specific vertical is there's a lot of commonalities uh, you know, between them. So when people are searching for um, solutions, so like a great example is like we worked with um, a whole bunch of different accounting um, software companies. And like, there's this big theme right now around accounts payable and all of these are the, uh, opportunities for automation within accounts payable. So you've got people who are looking for AP automation. That's very top of the funnel. It's somebody who's, who was at, you know, they, they, they heard this term somewhere, they read a blog post about it and they're curious. So they, you know, they type in AP automation. They're not even sure they're looking for software yet. Um, because the modifier that would be, that would show intent for them potentially looking for a solution uh, which is which is one of the most common you know used synonyms for software is they would, they would search for either AP automation software, AP automation solution, AP automation companies, AP automation vendors. Um, like there's a couple, there's a small handful of, of uh, modifiers that would move them from top of the funnel, AP automation, into the investigation phase, AP automation um, solutions, AP automation software, and then you start looking. You, you um, uh, what's interesting about software is the bottom of the funnel. Um, is not what you would like. It, it's not as um, as obvious as it would be with something like e-commerce, where you start seeing all these like buying intent modifiers. Um, people aren't usually searching for demos, right? Like that's sort of the end of the funnel. Um, you know, as a contact form or a demo request for a software company. You know, if it's B two B, if it's consumer, um, it's a different story because it's a much lower price point. But like in the B two B space, you want to get that demo. But people aren't out there looking. You know. When was the last time you you were looking for a piece of software and you went and searched for a demo of that software? So like, I just can't imagine people being like, oh, I want to search for AP automation software demos. It's just never going to happen. Instead, what they're going to do is they're going to look for integrations and, and specific features. Like I want, I, like, like people are going to look for AP automation for QuickBooks. And it's because they have an existing accounting platform and they want to find solutions that can plug into their existing tech stack and extend their existing systems to offer additional functionality that they know they want, or they know they're interested enough in to start, you know, prospecting for vendors, but they're not sure what, who those vendors are yet. Does that make, if that makes sense? It does. It does. So it, it makes sense. Then when you're at the grouping stage for those keywords, you really have, I'm visualizing this huge, this huge spreadsheet where you basically have the, 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 the list of keywords as, as a column and, and you just have those, those stages buying stages uh, uh, as the next four columns and you just try to match each keyword to a specific intent. Yes. Yep. Yeah. We map intent. Exactly. Okay. So let's say we have that now. Let's say we have those, those core themes. We know, we, we know for each theme, which one is relevant to which stage. Then how do we start turning this very raw data? Cause it's still very much data in spreadsheets or, 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 or in a software, the SEO software you use into a site that really converts that delights people. So, I mean, the, the first part is converting it into requirements, right? So we would design the site map and then from the site map, um, we would get down to page level requirements. So like what, uh, what is the use case for this, this page? Like what is the content that we need to have based on the persona? Um, then like how much of the content do we need to have on this page? And it's, it's really marrying the two of them together. So it, it's, what do we need to speak to from a use case and from a sales perspective? Like how do we make sure this page does a good job at selling the content on this page, selling the purpose of this page, but how do we also marry that against the SEO requirements? SEO requirements tend to be, you know, word use, word count. We need to make sure that we get this, this group of topics and these synonyms uh, onto the page in this volume. And we need to have this number of headers on the page. And um, we need to, like, to get more technical for a second without trying to, without screwing this up too much is one of the things that we do that's very different from most other technical SEO firms is we're actually starting to now take deep considerations for natural language processing, um, which is how... Uh, information retrieval for search engine works. It's a core piece of Google's underlying technology and algorithm. So understanding like what are the terms that Google is expecting to see on this page that will represent the the themes, the contextual relevance that Google is expecting to to have created on a page that they would 
reward with a very high search engine ranking. And that comes down to measurements of things like salience. And salience is a measurement of like term frequency or like what, you know, how many times is this term being used relative to the total amount of terms and topics in this page? So, you know, we want to make sure we get that dialed in to make sure that this page is representative for the keywords we want to rank it for, but not too representative for keywords that we need to use to tell the story on the page, but don't really have an impact from an SEO perspective. Right. So let me try to deconstruct what you just said, because it's, it's, it's critical. And, and that's the way technology is going, starting to, to act as, as close as possible to a real human who would actually read a page and try to understand the context. So it's trying with its technology to act as a human reading the page. And it's trying to infer that by looking at the volume of keywords, that it's not too salesy, it's not too much, it's not too less. Yet it's using connected terms. So if we talk about cleaning product, it, you might expect connected terms like, I don't know, sponges and, and, uh, whatever else. And, and you're basically trying to reverse engineer the reverse engineer almost. It's like trying to, to understand how Google think, but ultimately how humans uh, think. So do you have any tools that or any resources that people can use to get started with this particular uh, step? So there, there's a couple. So um, I wrote last year about how to design an SEO content map. And that's essentially how to like take all the keywords. Like once you've got all your keyword research together and you've got all the buckets, how to think about organizing them to inform a site's um, architecture, a, you know, and create essentially your site map and your content plan. And then um, the, the, on the NLP side, um, there's a guy named J.R. Oaks um, who's on Twitter and he's, he's brilliant. He's, he's building... Every day, he's building more and more um, like analysis and SEO tools based on natural language processing and sort of where it's going. And then from a tool side of things, there's a company based out of Germany called Write, R-Y-T-E. They have a really cool sort of beginner's level natural language processing tool set called TF-IDF. That stands for uh, Term Frequency Times Inverse Document Frequency. It's sort of an initial approach at natural language processing. Um, and then there's, uh, there's two other tools that are, have come out recently that both have APIs. If you wanted to, you know, if somebody wanted to try to start understanding how natural language processing works and how the, you know, the process for information retrieval begins to score groups of text and topics and identifying things like entities. One is called, um, alien spelled just like, like the word alien, but with a Y. So it's like a Y L I E N. Um, they have a text analysis API and then Google just put out their own this year. Um, and that's uh, their own natural language processing API. So what is the outcome of this tool? Like, what do you do? Like, let's say, so, so you have your sitemap ready, so you know which pages you need to create and you're trying to figure out the type of content you need to produce in order to answer people's queries, in order to match what they're trying to do, right? And, and you said that very well with the intent and the buying stages and all of that. So for the, the, the natural language processing uh, technology, where does it fit into this equation. What, what, what do you use this for when it comes to building a page? So we use it more for, for fine tuning, right? So it's, it's, we, we made the mistake that I've learned of trying to create the requirements and getting the, the content portions of these pages dialed in before we ever bring the pages live. Um, and I've learned that that is just not, that was not smart. It's because you're, you're just, you, as much as you, we, we believe we understand what Google wants and we have all these great tools to help lead us and guide us, it's never exactly right. So instead, we'll have sort of conversion-focused copywriters um, or we'll have copywriters that are very familiar with, with writing for, you know, to generate leads to drive sales. People like uh, Joel Kletke is a great example from Business Casual Copywriting. He's one of my favorites. Um, we'll have these guys and we'll have them write based on the persona. So we'll provide the personas to them. We won't do, give them any SEO data and we'll just have them write these pages based on invoking emotion and driving conversion. And then we'll run, like once we have all the content for the pages from the, our copywriters, then we'll go back and we'll run those, either the staging URLs or we'll run just the big blobs of text through these text analysis APIs. And they'll come back and let us know like, hey, these are the entities that were identified based on the sorting and scoring algorithms of these tools. So like, if these are the entities you want good. If there's entities in here you don't want, you need to, to sort of thin them out. You need to make them less representative. And these are the, this is where um, the technical approach gets really fun. So we just did this last week for a client in the, in the financial space. They're, they have a loan product. Um, and when we ran the, their pages through Google's um, natural language processing API, we found out that they had the high salience, so like a very high term weight for a bunch of keywords that, we, that they needed to have on the page from a compliance perspective and from a sales perspective 
but they're terms that we don't want Google to have any relation to this page. They're, they're not important from search at all. So we came up with a strategy to instead uh, find a way to get those words off the page. So keep the, the messaging on the page for the users, but get the text itself off the page. So what we, what we did there was we, we created images. We created a horizontal bar and we used it to really call out the, these, these requirements from both a, a legal compliance standpoint, but also from a sales perspective that allowed us to, to meet that requirement, present that information to the user, but not have it be present in a way where Googlebot and Google's crawlers are able to find it. So that goes back to, to your initial research on how people speak and stuff. I, I guess the reason why you didn't want these, those keywords to be on the page is because you knew that people weren't searching for those terms or that it could confuse them as well, right? Correct. It, it, it was what the, the bigger issue was, it was these terms were being used enough on the page that it was making the page more about these terms than the terms we wanted to target. Right. So it's, it's a very, very advanced way to understand whether like your content makes sense and as as a consequence making sure that google understand that this page is for this particular topic do not think this page is for this other topic that we don't want to fucking uh, rank for it's only for this particular theme correct right okay so we, we went quite deep into this because it's quite it's quite interesting now let's take uh try to take a take a step back and talk about the, the next step uh, in the process. So let's say we have our sitemap, we, we build our content. If we don't have a lot of money to, to write all of those pages, you can either take a, take a stab at yourself, but I would definitely recommend you to listen to the, um, one of my episodes with uh, Joanna Weeb about commercial copywriting and frameworks. Yeah, so, yeah, so Joe, funny enough, the, the guy that I mentioned, uh, Joel Kletke, he works very, very frequently with Joanna Weeb. She's tremendous. Yeah, so she's definitely the, the 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 authority when it comes to commercial copywriting, and she has the right tools. Yes. She has the right tools, the right methods, the right frameworks uh, for you to start even today and to write with commercial in mind. So you can definitely listen back to this episode where we go through a few frameworks and, and all of that. So now let's say we have that and we we've, we've we've written those pages, and there's at this stage we don't have a design per se. We only have yes texts and shitloads of Google Docs or whatever else you're using to write to write all of those pages. So how do we turn that into a, a website that we know is appealing for people, therefore? So this is, the, this is, this is where we get into the meat and potatoes um, to use a, a hopefully somewhat Irish uh, euphemism um, <laughs> of this conversation. It's where it really gets exciting. So um, there's, there's a lot of schools of thought that are sort of broken. Um, and, and one of the first signs of a, a um, inexperienced web designer, web development firm is one who will talk to you. They'll meet with you. They'll have you, they'll have you gather a bunch of examples of websites that you like, and they'll go out and they'll start delivering designs before the content is done. Designs should always be informed directly and 100% from the content itself. If you have, you should never be doing design without the content because you don't know what the hell you're designing for. So once you have the content, you can begin to look at design patterns that are going to be user-friendly and search engine-friendly. And this is where, where stuff gets really exciting. And it's what we do very specifically. It's one of the things that I think we do better than most of the other companies out there. And it's because there are design patterns that work much better for search engines than others. Specifically, so Google moved officially to, they've begun rolling out their mobile-first index uh, January of this year, which means that the content that is on your mobile site, your mobile pages, the mobile versions of your pages, is what they're going to use to score and rank those pages in their index for all the different keywords that those pages might be relevant for. It used to be the other way around. So like last year, the content on your desktop version of your pages was going to drive your mobile rankings on their mobile index. This big shift to what they're calling their mobile first index means that the content that is on the mobile versions of your pages is going to be weighted much more heavily. The good news for, for marketers and the good news for SEOs specifically is that Google is, is now allowing us to hide content on the mobile version. So we can have HTML on the page that needs to be there for the desktop version. It needs to be there for SEO reasons, but we don't have to show it all to mobile users because mobile users by the, the, the simple fact of, of, you know, the intent of people who are doing these searches, whether they're investigating or they're looking to make a spot purchase on their phone, they don't need all the, the same vast amount of content that a desktop user would be in there. They've got this much, much smaller screen and a much shorter attention span. Um, you have to think about the common use cases of people on their phone. It's people at the office, in the bathroom, in their cars, standing in line at the grocery store. You know, it, it's getting to the point, And again, it's using these design patterns that are enabled to encapsulate all of the content that you need from an SEO perspective, but being able to hide much of that content 
from the display. It's still there on the page. It's in the HTML. Google can see it. Google can use it to score and rank that page, but the user doesn't need to see it. But there's right and wrong ways to do this. It's, it's, it's not just display none. It's not just moving it off the page um, with some 500 pixel width. It's not using these sort of old and outdated practices. It's, it's adapting and embracing a number of the new JavaScript frameworks, potentially using some of the um, content APIs that allow you to leverage something like a shell architecture where you can remotely load this content in as it's needed via calling that content into uh, the framework that the site is built on. Right. So let's talk about those design patterns in more details and perhaps identify one or two and trying to, I don't want to fall into like best practices that will change. I'm trying to identify, perhaps you can, you can find a particular pattern that we know works because this is how people think and humans act. It's just the way people behave and therefore it's, it's very unlikely to change. So can you identify a typical like structure or something that you know is unlikely to change in the next two years, five years, 10 years. Yes. Yeah. So I think in the next five years, 10 years is too far for, for this industry, but five years, I think it's safe to say that, um, and this is, this is going to be an oversimplification, but I think you might appreciate it. And that is sure. design patterns, design patterns that are thumb friendly. Um, so, you know, uh, being able to use horizontal scroll to go through, you know, chunks of textual information using, um, accordions, but vertically stacked accordions. So having a design pattern. So, where a bunch of, of text content may shrink down to accordion driven because the user may not want to read all of it. They may not want to get all of those details as they scroll down past the page to either take action or move on, you know, move further into the conversion funnel. So having design patterns where you are able to summarize the topic, summarize the content very quickly in, in a number, you know, five to seven words, where if the user, cl you know, clicks with their thumb on that, that section of the accordion or scrolls left or right to get to, Uh, that chunk of text for more information. It's there if they want it, but you're not forcing them to experience that content. And I love that because I'm thinking right now about a company I'm not necessarily admiring, but at least they're doing it well for now is, is Facebook and their, and the way they do it on their mobile. You, you notice those kind of things, those expand buttons, those, those, um, those accordion that you, where you can swipe left and right. I mean, obviously there's an obvious also another example of, of a company that use the accordion, the vertical, uh, horizontal accordion very well, or the, the, the movement of swiping left or right is Tinder as well, right? So there is yes. definitely thinking of research and, and how people behave, which is the core of marketing, understanding how people behave and, and how they do things. You, you, you very well identify one pattern that is, that, that is at the minutes, the way we use smartphones, which is the thumb and, doing maybe real life research when it comes to building your website and just putting those pages on mobile in front of, of, of people and just see how they behave with it will give you ideas on how to simplify it, summarize it, um, hide content that doesn't necessarily is relevant for, for people on mobile. And this way, then you can really build something that, that people enjoy using, right? No, it, it, I think you're exactly right. Um, and you're hitting on, you're hitting on the, um, the exact right way to, to sort of come at this, which is, um, well, and some, so just to follow onto that, something that, that's a little bit more fun to think about. Um, and you know, you're a technical person We're we're, you know, we're young enough that I think, well, we didn't, and I, and I don't want to insult you. I don't know if you're as old as I am, but I didn't grow up with cell phones. Uh, you know, I, I had a pager when I was in seventh grade. Um, but like I look at my, my youngest sibling, um, is 21 And, you know, cell phones were always there. Like she, she, like, you know, she didn't have a pager first. She never had a, there was never a period in her life when she didn't have a phone. So what's amazing and fascinating to me, um, as somebody in digital is to watch sort of this evolution of the, um, dexterity of the, the new users, the new power users of, of, of mobile phones and, and these power users of the internet, because I'm starting to see, you know, where we have this tendency to use sort of big thumb friendly buttons you're seeing, uh, and Google is actually, or, uh, Facebook's one of the companies leading the way you're starting to see much smaller, um, click targets to expand things, smaller text links, read more, see more, view more tiny things that require the, you know, a very tight, you know, by relative comparison, a very tight, uh, click area, you know, that where you have to, you have to have a dexterity of your fingers. You can't just fat finger things anymore. You're not using your thumb. You're starting to see people who are using their thumb to scroll through very quickly. But if they want to join for more information, they're switching hands and they're using their pointer finger to hit a very much, a much, much smaller link target. Um, and the reason it's smaller so you can scroll past it unless you have specific interests. Um, and this is just, this is one of those things in terms of the evolution of design patterns to be mobile first that I find fascinating. 
And, and it goes back to I know I'm, I keep repeating myself, and and uh, you might you might say what the fuck? Why is he? Uh, why does he keep talking about this? But it's so important to me is that those principles are not going to change. Observing people in the wild, understand how people use your website or or use your product or or talk or whatever is it's a principle that you can rely on as a marketer forever. However, technology moves fast, obviously, but there is a difference between trying to follow trends and say okay. I saw this article talking about best practices about mobile and I really need to, I really need to use those, those mobile framework that, that this article just told us to, because if we don't, our competitors are going to win against us. Instead of thinking this way, just think people first in terms of how, do, how are my consumers behaving? How are my people behaving right now? And trying to observe that and see if there is any switch. And this is how then you can really have leverage because you will know firsthand what you need to focus on next. So. It's a, it's a minute difference, but I think it's so critical to focus on the right thing so that you don't, you know, chase this shiny object syndrome or you don't get caught up into this race to the bottom of trying to follow so-called best practices. So I'm super, super glad you're mentioning this particular example. Is there any other pattern or, or thing based on, on how people behave that makes sense to, to use in your website or at least consider right now? I mean, it's mostly just about how to, to make content accessible on mobile, but not force it onto the users. And it's really about leveraging a lot of the different, you know, capabilities of modern JavaScript. Um, and as Google continues to improve its ability to render and crawl JavaScript, um, I just, I think, you know, like some like previous solutions of previous years, like when people who like developers got really excited about Angular and Node.js five or six years ago. Um, but Google was nowhere near ready to be able, being able to crawl it. So you had to use solutions like prerender.io that would allow you to create a cached version of the page. So you had a version of the page for Google and then a version of the page for everybody else. Um, Google is moving toward this sort of a singularity in the sense that I don't think that those solutions are going to be required for much longer. I think Google is, is getting significantly better at, at, at crawling and rendering JavaScript. Um, but in the meantime, I think it's important to make sure at least if you're going to be hiding content, if you're going to be making content, um, available only on request on the user end to make sure that you're fetching those, you know, that, that the design patterns that you're using and the technology that you're using to, to support those design patterns um, can be completely fetched and rendered by Google. Um, and one of the most important tools uh, in any in any toolbox for anybody trying to rank any website is uh, Google Search Console. Right. So there you have it, folks. I think we talked about designing a commercial-focused website that looks good, but yet without having to sacrifice SEO and speed. I mean, it's been almost 45 minutes we're talking about this in, 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 in depth and in quite technical terms. So I think we did a pretty good job at going through this step by step. So Nick, thank you so much for spending the time to do this with me today. I know it's not easy over podcasts to decide to describe the basics as well as the advanced things. And you, you done, you did a very good job. So thank you. I want to talk briefly about your history because I mentioned in your intro that uh, you started your entrepreneurship journey uh, when you were seven. I, in a very, uh, how do you call that? In a very American way, should I say, you know, there's this uh, <laughs> young, young entrepreneurs, young, young, young kids starting a business when they are, um, when they are only seven, six, uh, eight or something. Um, so if you have to identify the biggest business or marketing fuck up in your career, what would it be? So, I mean, I, I've built and sold, I built and sold two businesses before this one, and I've, I've built and sold countless websites. Some of the, the biggest fuck up, there's so many fuck ups. It's really hard to pick the biggest one. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've sold domains way too early. I've sold businesses for like, I sold a business for 30 grand. <laughs> um, it was just a website that was generating leads for a very specific vertical. I sold it for, you know, 30 grand five or six years ago. Um, and, and it was just because I sold it to the first buyer that made me an offer. Um, the person who bought it, uh, screwed it up a whole bunch, but they just did a much better job of, of pitching it and finding a bigger buyer. And I think they turned around and sold it for several hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hmm. Um, so like there, there's been opportunities where I've rushed to get out of businesses because I, you know, they're distractions and there, there's a value, like there's valuable lessons to be learned on both sides of that, which is, you know, um, I've got ADHD like to the extreme. So I'm constantly at war with my, my focus and, 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 and what I'm able to focus on. So if I take on too many projects, you know, I usually get to a point where I, I identify that I need to chop some of them off and, and ideally sell them or find partners to take them over and run them. Um, but there have been instances where I've done that a little bit too quickly. Um, and left a lot of money on the table. Um, another interesting one is I had an SEO blog, uh, that I sold back in 2014 
Um, I wrote about it on, on, on the, I'm from the future blog, but, uh, I, I, I had a, a blog that I made sort of on a whim. Um, it was called SEO Nick.net. I hated the, I hated the brand name. It was a stupid brand. Um, <laughs> so I sold it cause I was like, I think this is a really stupid brand. I don't want this anymore. So I sold it for a hundred thousand dollars just to sort of get rid of it. And the problem is that my name was so attached to it that to this day, um, people still attach me to that brand name. I mean, it's been four years. Um, people still identify me and attach me to the, the SEO Nick brand. And, and in retrospect, while, you know, the cash was nice at the time, I probably shouldn't have sold it. And it's true because when I, uh, search for your name on Google uh, today, uh, to prepare for the, for this interview, one of the first results that came up was exactly this blog, this domain. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's were you diagnosed with ADHD or are you just saying that you have ADHD? No, I got diagnosed. Um, I got diagnosed at, in first grade. Um, uh, it was believed that I had like a learning disability. I actually, I wrote, um, I wrote all about it on another website of mine, uh, addhero.com. Uh, where like, like I had like my whole story about how, um, the school that I was at, you know, thought I had like a, a learning disability and, and, <laughs> and had like this major problem. Um, and so I went and got tested and, and, you know, they, they came to find out that it was just, I was in the wrong environment. Um, and so my parents moved me to a different school that had a program, um, for people more that like, that were more like me. Um, and it sort of helped change the trajectory of my life. I guess your parents were, were quite happy to, to hear that you didn't have learning disability, that you just had, uh, uh, this kind of hyperactive, uh, personality instead. Right. I, I guess so. I, I think I was, I was still a nightmare as a child, so I don't think it really right. mattered to them. Right. Um, they ended up choosing not to medicate me, um, which I don't know if they, if they would still say was a good idea or not, you know, 34 years later or 25 years later, however long it's been since then. But, um, it was, uh, I was definitely, uh, challenging, uh, <laughs> right. We can, we can have another episode about this as well. Um, Cause that's also an interesting thing. I interviewed a, a marketer uh, from forest, P-H-O-R-E-S-T.com, which is a salon software, software for salon, uh, beauty salons. And he has, uh, he's been diagnosed with ADHD as well. And I think in this industry, there's quite a lot of people who suffer from this. Um, so it's good to hear uh, your perspective on it. Um, last few questions that I always ask my guests, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, or even 50 years? Um, learn how to have conversations with engineers. Um, you don't have to become an engineer. I'm not going to sit here and say everybody should learn how to code. Cause I think that's bullshit. Um, but you know, being able to have a intelligent conversation with somebody in the in engineering department or a head of engineering as a marketer is not only going like engineering is the future of marketing. It's a big part of our brand. It's why like we, so I, you know, we went with from the future as a brand name. It, it's not going anywhere. And the more that you understand how to be able to translate your marketing initiatives and, and the, the hows and the whys to the people that are actually going to be responsible for implementing um, them, the, the faster you're going to get buy-in across the organization and the faster you're going to get stuff done. Because developers, engineers are a funky kind of personality. And the smarter they are, the more difficult they can be to work with. And the difference there is developers have to like you. They don't like if they're going to do good work for you and they're going to find solutions, because you got to remember all, all developers and engineers are, are, are professional problem solvers. They can create problems if they want to, uh, especially with the CTO. It doesn't matter if you're coming in as an outside marketing consultant. If, if they don't, if they don't believe in, in you and you're not able to, to sh have a shared language, a common ground to translate your requirements to them in a way that makes sense to them and supports their goals and initiatives within their role and, you know, to fit their responsibilities, they'll, they'll, they will go out of their way to make sure that they don't do what you need them to do for you to deliver to your client until such a point that you get fired. Yeah, I can definitely vouch for that. I, I wish I knew a bit more about, about, about uh, programming languages and stuff, but definitely what helped me was to dig uh, my head into HTML and CSS a few years ago. So I understand the basics, at least when, when people explain, uh, explain all of that to me. But I wish, I think I need to learn a bit more about JavaScript in particular. You mentioned a few things that I have, in fairness, no, absolutely no clue about. I think maybe JavaScript is the next thing I need to get my head around. Uh, thanks for sharing that. What are the top three best resources you would recommend our listeners? Could be a book, a podcast, anything. So I, I, I have been, um, I did check out a number of episodes um, uh, for from marketing uh Everyone hates marketers, and I actually really like the the program. That's why I, you know, I responded to you initially about you know I'd, I'd be thrilled and honored to be on here. Um, I really like what you're doing with this. I think it's it's a lot of really good uh, conversations. 
Um, I'm also, I'm very biased. Um, I think one of the best resources for anybody in digital is traffic think tank. Um, but obviously I'm wildly biased. So that almost doesn't even count. Um, but we've got some of the most brilliant minds, um, in SEO and conversion and in, in user experience in there. And, and the, it's, it's genuinely a community. People share a lot of stuff that they don't share publicly. They can't share publicly. Um, so I think that, I think that's really, it's become a tremendous place, um, in that sense, uh, outside of that, um, Matthew Barbie's blog, uh, MatthewBarbie.com, He does a fantastic job. Um, I still like, I think Brian Dean does a really good job of making marketing very accessible. Uh, and then Ryan Stewart, uh, from Webris, um, he puts a lot of free information out there. He gives away a lot of free templates for a lot of different, uh, digital marketing, um, focuses. And, and, and I think he's very generous with his time, uh, online. I still wonder how uh, Matthew Barbie manages to, to create blog posts and how be part of this community you just mentioned. And yet he's the VP, is he the VP of acquisition or um, direct, yeah, direct, director of acquisition, director of acquisition for HubSpot, which is not, which is not a small company. I just don't know how yeah. he, he fucking does it. So fair play to him. Um, he, he used to be based in Dublin. Uh, I saw him a few times at conferences. Um, thank you so much. Once again, uh, Nick, to spend the time to talk to me today. Um, I learned a lot from you. Where can listeners connect with you and learn more from you? Um, I mean, the, the best way to probably connect with me personally is on Twitter. Um, I'm on there a lot. I'm very active and outspoken. Um, I, I imagine just because, you know, you've dropped the F-bomb a few times in here. Most of your listeners probably don't care about swearing, which no, is they love it. I, I, I was going to say, I, I swear a lot on Twitter, um, probably too much. Um, but outside of Twitter, uh, I, I do. I mean, I spend a lot of time in uh, in traffic think tank, which is a, again, it's a Slack group. Uh, it's not like a forum. Like it's it's very much it's an ongoing conversation. Um, so I'm I'm in there every day for a couple hours. For someone with ADHD, I mean, Slack is a nightmare for me. I just cannot deal with Slack. <laughs> uh, I much rather have a forum actually. So it's not for everyone. Uh, I really wish I could join this group, but because it's on Slack, it's like I I can't deal with Slack. Yep. It's, it's the way it is <laughs> right Nick uh, once again thank you so much that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com and this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list so before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation so I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always uns- unsubscribe for sure, if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet, and we always uh, can improve. So you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com. Good or bad, please feel free to send me an email. And the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode, please share it to your friends, your colleagues, or whoever might like it. And also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast. Because if you leave us a five-star review, it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker. So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. 
Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.